Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. We should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who are the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahlm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies, The Seventh Age of Spielberg, Playing with House Money. It's a great moniker that Matthew Knutson just came up with for this final uh, Spielberg uh, oeuvre celebration that we've been uh, embarking upon for the last, I don't know, two years now? I think we started in July or August of 2017. So we are coming up on two years. That's exciting. But when you consider that we've gone through 32 movies now, Mm -hmm. and we're going to end up with eight episodes of this thing once we include our our ranking episode, uh, I don't think that's an unreasonable amount of time. No, especially when we're doing other podcasts in between. We have a full other podcast side gig that we have to go through. We have to watch every uh, Marvel movie and whatnot. Um, (laughs) Multiple multiple, uh, miniseries. So there's like podcast multiverses all uh, existing (laughs) simultaneously um another exciting thing we're doing this uh in person matt's here in seattle at my kitchen island right here Mm -hmm. we have two dogs so if you hear any prancing around it's it's one of these old bastards (laughs) but yeah exciting stuff and it's kind of bittersweet to finish it but we're gonna do the post uh well sorry in order bridge of spies bfg the post and ready player one you know we thought there was a chance that he'd have uh what the the funeral of Edward Mortera? What is the what is the name of that? It's a long title. Ed, Edward Ed, Edgardo Mortera. Eduardo <laughs> Mortera. Yeah, I don't know. The name has changed over the years. That was actually supposed to come right? the oh. burial of Marquis. I mean, you might be thinking of the three burials of Marquis oh, El Strada, <laughs> the uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones movie. Whatever it's called or was supposed to be called, it was supposed to be his follow up to the BFG. Yeah. From what from the research that I did, they were having a hard time casting the titular child okay and as a result because they already obviously knew mark rylance was going to play the yeah. pope that's a slam dunk right we're Maybe. smack dab in the middle of the spielberg rylance bro- <laughs> the, the, the bro right the, the rye rye bromance the bride the brymance brymance yeah and so it makes sense that of course he would have played the pope and i think oscar isaac was involved in some capacity mm-hmm. but they couldn't cast the kid it makes sense that he'd be gun shy casting a child after his experience with the bfg <sighs> we'll we'll see. I'm not sure if I agree with you on that. I'm not going to disagree with you that the BFG is Lesser Spielberg. I don't. I think he would probably even agree that that's Lesser Spielberg. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll get to Ruby Barnhall here in a second. Okay. But um, but first, Bridge of Spies, which to me is a wonderful 
and logical next step after Lincoln, sure. which is the last movie that we talked about, right? Yeah. And the last episode was always one I was dreading because there was a couple of rough ones in there. But what was great about that is we got to end with Lincoln. Yeah. So we got to end on a high note because not to spoil anything for next uh, for our next episode, our ranking episode, but Lincoln's going to rank pretty highly for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, that movie just matures, I don't know, grows for me every time I see it. Yeah, I mean, it's it'll definitely be high on my list, too. I think it is pretty much a masterpiece. And, uh, you know, going through these movies, so many great ones, but a lot of them are, are flawed in, you know, specific ways. And Lincoln comes off as pretty, pretty dang flawless. It, it does feel like this point in his career, he's got, like, a big bucket list checklist. And he's like, okay, World War One movie, War Horse, right? <laughs> yes. Cold War movie, Bridge of Spies. Yeah. Uh, Got to do the Lincoln biopic. We need a Korean War movie yeah. here at some point. <laughs> sure. We're going to need his Gulf War movie. Yeah, fuck yeah. And then, uh, obviously, video game adaptation, which he's always wanted to do, of course. Yes. Or video game movie adaptation, whatever you want to call it. Member Berry's movie. Yeah, well, now I'm consumed by this whole war thing. Technically, the post is as close as he's, as he's ever come to a Vietnam movie, isn't it? Yes. We'll get into we'll get into that in here in a second, but <laughs> but yeah, I'm just thinking about him going through and like ch- you know checking all these different boxes. I mean, I would love for him at some point to actually make a straight. The, the opening of Lincoln makes me want to see the Spielberg, you know, the Gettysburg movie, right? Yeah, that'd be I would, fun. I would like or the Appomattox Courthouse movie or something. I'd like every movie that Spielberg does to be written by Tony Kushner at this point. It seems like there's a pretty good chance they will be. Say what you want to about Spielberg's, you know, sentimentality or his his, his shortcomings, his penchant for manipulation, (laughs) but he hitches his wagon to some really strong, you know, all David Kep's aside, (laughs) uh, he's hitched his wagon to some pretty incredible screenwriters like he's obviously very savvy about that and this might be one of the more interesting examples of that because it's the first time he's worked with the Coens right British Spies and Matt Charman Charnack Matt Charman I think his name what's the story with I mean is was this something he brought the Coens onto or was this one of those like uh it'd been in the Coens you know, desk for no dust for years. From the research that I did, this they, this was a pure um, hired gun job for the Coens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this guy Matt Sharman, British playwright. Yeah, and this was a story he heard about. He was like reading a book about JFK, mm-hmm. and James Donovan was like a footnote in some JFK biography he was reading about. Sure. And so he started researching this, and of course, the more you delve into the story, the more fascinating it becomes. And so he dedicated himself to adapting this story and got James Donovan's biography. Yeah. I don't think Bridge of Spies is technically an adaptation because I don't think it's based on any specific book yeah. or pre-existing text. But James Donovan did write an account of this whole mm-hmm. Bridge of Spies situation. And so Matt Charman got really into it, started outlining the thing, I think wrote a treatment and then took it to DreamWorks. And Spielberg apparently fell in love with it immediately. And it was his decision to bring the Coens in to quote-unquote polish Right, and apparently Matt Sharnin was totally on board. This is what this yeah. isn't like. They took it away from him and gave it to the Coens. Yeah. They brought the Coens in, had them sex it up a little bit, gave it back to Sharnin. He would kind of tweak and massage, and they give it back to the Coens. Apparently, it was a true collaboration. I wouldn't be offended if someone said, "Hey, I'm going to let the Coens look at this." And if the Coens are willing to even look at it, then that is a as big a compliment as you can get, right? Truly, and wouldn't you love to know? all the uncredited rewrites they've done in there because I'm sure there's got to be at least half a dozen major films that they've polished or helped with or you know punched up that we'll never we'll never hear about because they didn't get credit I would also imagine that in in Hollywood and again I'm no I'm no insider like you are Matt but insider (laughs) that 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 
you know, obviously uh, rewrites and you know, ghost writing is is happens a ton, right? And you want the people, and the Coens seem like these kind of people who absolutely won't say anything about it after the fact, right? Well, I'm they sure they don't want to make a big deal. They don't want to take credit later on. They're right, like, you know, they'll right. come in and just sort of egolessly take it over, as opposed to the M Night Shyamalan's yeah, who insist the, that they uh, wrote "She's All That." Yeah, or the or the rest in peace Carrie Fisher's like years down the line. Or yes, whatever, right? sure. But like, it, it's a it's a rampant thing that happens, right? Yes, like, and the WGA is infamous for having very weird, specific fine print mm-hmm. bylaws and details that preclude a lot of people who do a lot of work from getting the credit they deserve. The flip side, though, is that ghostwriters, alleg- you know, legendarily get very well compensated for yes. these things. So yeah. it's a great gig, but it's not a necessarily a gig for somebody who has a lot of ego and needs to see their, their name up on the big screen. Yeah. The best gigs are like, with, you know, like the Patton Oswalt gigs where you get yeah. to come in and just... Uh, one-off jokes in front of animated movies and get paid, you know, yes. 500 grand for one day's work. At the risk of invoking uh, Entourage here, which is something I uh, try to avoid doing at you all do costs. do basically every episode. Um, there is a, a pretty darn funny episode where they're um, making Midian in, um, in Midian, yeah. and um, they're having a hard time with the script, so they bring Stephen Gagan in to do like a polish <laughs> or whatever, and Stephen Gagan, of course, plays himself, and he comes all the way to Midian, and then, uh, Bill, what's his name, Billy Walsh, the director, yeah. is such a megalomaniac that he insists on doing the rewrite himself or whatever, but they still end up having to pay Stephen Gagan, so Stephen, <laughs> Stephen Gagan ends up getting paid you know, $100,000 just to take a trip to Midian and gets put right back on the plane, and I always thought that was a pretty great gig for an Oscar-winning screenwriter. Yeah, so Bridge of Spies comes along after Lincoln. He's checking off this Cold War spy box, right? And he's in this Capra-esque constitution period, right? Mm-hmm. You can kind of follow Amistad to Lincoln to Bridge of Spies yeah. to the Post, if sure. you really want to look at that as like his constitution series, right? I suppose. That's true. I'll say this. You know, Coens are involved. This script feels very un-Cohen-like. Okay. Right? Almost like there's, there's a lack of... Uh, it's not very funny. There's sort of a lack of incident. You know, there's not as much conflict as you'd expect from a from a Cohen Brothers movie. Right? It's certainly not as dark or absurd. It doesn't yeah. have their fingerprints on it the way maybe we expected yeah. hearing that they were involved. Yeah. Like, wow, Spielberg's making a movie that the Coens may have written all of, may have written a portion of. Mm-hmm. I do think that apparently most of what they were involved in was the actual negotiation stuff. Like the second half stuff in Berlin, okay. that's really where they did most of their work. And sure. there are some kind of absurd scenes with like the fake family yeah. and you know the, okay. the re- Sebastian Sebastian Koch, the guy, the German guy from sure. uh, Lies of Others and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the uh, Russian guy whose name escapes me i mean some of that and stuff the gets gang who just takes his coat yeah i mean directions. some yeah. of that stuff gets to be a little more uh a quirkier sure. maybe is, is a good word to use than you're used to seeing in a spielberg movie but i mostly agree with you that yeah it doesn't really feel it's not part of the cohen canon yeah and, and i think the main reason why is the cohen's lead characters are notoriously flawed okay, right sure and uh tom hanks james Don- james donovan yeah james right? donovan is uh is flawless. flawless. He yeah. is he is infallible. He is full integrity from the get go. He does not waver. Like what should be a major conflict in this narrative of whether he should take this case or go full on out or whatever. It's not it's like from the get go. He's all in. Right? Yeah, it's you true. Know, this is the right thing to do. 
he's unwavering throughout and he's in control basically throughout he gets kind of lost at one point he has a cold that's the worst that's what goes on that's the worst <laughs> thing that happens to him I'm like, I feel like they gave him that cold because like okay, he's, this guy's got nothing he's got nothing yeah. bad happening to him so we have to give him a cold I agree it's funny I never really thought about that before that he is infallible to a fault yeah and that is that does that is a problem it, it's interesting and maybe that's been a problem throughout the last 15 years of Tom Hanks's career I mean Tom Hanks is now making movies where he plays really stalwart upstanding guys who are really good yeah. at their job your Sully's your Captain Phillips yeah. is yeah right <laughs> which is fine nobody does it better yeah and I mean in the post he's uh yeah, we'll, ben get, we'll get we'll yeah, get Ben Bradley. We'll get to the post. But yeah, you're right. That 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 is a problem. Mm-hmm. And what's missing from this movie is because when I was sort of writing up my notes about it and thinking a lot about and you know all these films in retrospect and thinking about Spielberg's relationship with fathers mm-hmm. and the way that fathers um, either you know betray their families or bring their families back together. And I was like, the only thing that this guy really does that's a problem is that he puts his family in danger. Yeah. But the movie doesn't really explore that the way that it should. We are missing a scene where Amy Amy Adams, uh, Amy Ryan, mm-hmm. really presses him on the fact that he's putting his family in danger yes. and they're firing, you know, they're firing bullets at Bono's daughter yeah. in the middle of the night. I mean, that's that's potentially problematic, and the movie doesn't seem very interested in exploring that at all. No, which and, is too bad and, because there's a lot of meat there. No, and, and this is like the stakes should be should feel high, like the tension should feel extremely high. And while I really I do like this movie, and I think it's an easy watch, mm-hmm. it's fucking Cold War geopolitical lives are on the line. Like it should feel tense, and it just never does, right? And I, I don't know if that's because of the, the the flawless main character or what you're saying, where it's like no one ever pushes back on him to a degree where he questions. His actions, right? Yeah, he's always righteous from the from the, from the very beginning. Yeah, you never feel like he's really in danger, right? The the only time you do is kind of when he's walking around in the snow in Berlin and he gets maybe mugged, but it, they, you deflate that really quickly with the you know with that little gang of teenagers. Or well, let's cut this thing in half because that's exactly what the movie does. Yeah. So you got the first half is it's almost exactly in half. As a matter of fact, it's basically an hour and ten minutes in New York and an hour and ten minutes in Berlin. Allegedly, a lot of the stuff in New York is completely fabricated to do exactly what you say the film is like to try and build some yeah. kind of tension, right? Like apparently nobody ever attacked his family's house or anything probably like that. Probably because no one even knew what the fuck he was doing. Yeah. Like, he probably wasn't a public figure. Exactly. Right? So the movie goes out of its way to try and build some of that tension that you mentioned is kind of missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's not that successful at it. And there's like one scene in the courthouse where he had, or uh, Hanks and Alan Alda and Amy Ryan are having this kind of heated debate about whether yeah. or not they should push forward with this um, with this appeal. And again, that movie just like starts to scratch on something interesting and then kind of loses interest in it. Yeah, exactly. And then we switch to Berlin, and I would say that the second half of the film certainly is superior. Mm-hmm. I think it's superior. There is more tension. There is more danger. I mean, it's a really interesting exciting provocative um location if nothing else right like that i am so fucking fascinated with east and west berlin like Mm -hmm. cold war the berlin wall like all that stuff fascinates me so much because i can't believe that that happened like 30 years ago that that, the fucking wall was still like i I just can't wrap my mind around Hasselhoff on the wall exactly so someday someone's gonna make the great berlin wall movie Mm -hmm. or the great like you said Hasselhoff on the wall like i want (laughs) to see the movie where we literally because i was we were just fairly too young like i remember 1989 like seeing it 
on the news, but not being able to understand no what, was, what was going on. What's yeah. like, how is this possible? And even now, I still can't wrap my brain around the fact there was a fucking wall. So that stuff is really interesting because you do feel there is a fear involved. Like when, once you get to the wrong side of that wall, you may not make it back, yeah. right? And, and he does a great job when he introduces the not pow, uh, prior, mm-hmm. right? Francis Powers yeah. and Gary. Yeah, Gary Pryor. When Gary Pryor goes over the wall with his bike to get his girlfriend and then they come back and now they've sealed up the wall. I mean, that's scary. And so that stuff is pretty tense. Apparently all shot in uh, Poland mm-hmm. because Berlin obviously doesn't look like this anymore, but no. Poland still does. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so the second half is actually more dangerous, more exciting, more coney, and probably superior. The caveat for this would be that the second half doesn't have any Rylance. Yeah. And Rylance is the movie's secret weapon, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Rylance is, uh, I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't terribly familiar with him before this movie, and then obviously brought him into the Spielberg world, and he's used him twice more since, right? Yeah. Uh, BFG and uh, Ready Player One. Yeah, and he's he's spectacular. He really does carry that first half of the movie. Every scene with him pretty much sings. Like his the movie opens with him. The introduction. It's yeah, Bravura. Yeah, great scene with him doing spy shit. Right, yeah. and I don't know. Yeah, I, I kind of have. And the second half does get into this more, and and that's where this movie hums. But this has an issue that I have with the post that wasn't an issue in Lincoln, for instance, which is getting into the more granular sort of procedural elements Mm -hmm. of what's going on because I think that's what's exciting to me about this spy stuff right Mm -hmm. is the you know Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy kind of thing sure where we're getting you know getting into and and there's like I said there's a little bit of that in in, in the in the Berlin back and forth where he's you know getting the phone number and he's going to the fake family and all that shit Um, so I, I wish the movie was more full of that but I don't. I don't know. I just, for whatever reason, the script didn't. It didn't lend itself to suspense, and I felt the same way in the theater that I did upon rewatch. Where I'm like, I, I, I know that I should be feeling more narrative pressure, narrative stress here, but I'm, I'm just not because hmm. I just, I, I feel like I know. And maybe it's just the, the the Tom Hanks character. Like, we never see him worry. And so he's just, uh, yeah, he's righteous and he's going to win. He's projecting a confidence, yeah. which I guess is inherent. That's one of the things that makes him so good at his job. Yeah. Is an inher- even he, He's able to mask his insecurities sure. even when he's feeling them. Because if he doesn't, he's not going to be the great negotiator, right? And yeah, that's yeah. his utility is, is he's the negotiator. Mm-hmm. That's complicated. Because he needs that, otherwise he's no good at his job. But because he's so good at doing that, we don't get to see any of the inner yeah. workings, right? And well, and there's never like you know, the the, the last scene, the, the 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 you know, bridge of spies, right, where where they're doing the exchange. You're talking uh, about the titular bridge. The titular bridge. <laughs> the Glanicky bridge. <laughs> You know, there's never a moment where you feel like he's going to lose, right? Like, that's just mm. pure narrative structure where, like, everything has failed and, like, he's got no hope and something, you know, something changes. But, no, it's just sort of drawn out pretty long. But there's never any any sense that he's not going to get his way, hmm. right? Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with you. It's a weird movie. Yeah. It's a movie I really like, but I don't think it's one of Spielberg's best yeah. I don't know. I have very complex feelings about it. I wasn't crazy about it the first time I saw it in the theater. I found it to be kind of slow and sort of formless. Mm-hmm. And I've liked it more and more every time I've watched it since. And there are moments that really sing, mm-hmm. many of them involving Rylance, like the stuff in the jail between, yeah. you know, like Rylance's big Oscar scene, a lot of the stuff in Berlin. But it's a strangely, it's, it's a tonally inconsistent film. And all the stuff with the U2 plane and Jesse Plemons and uh, August... Powell, is that his name, who plays know. the kid, who plays Gary Powers? I'm not interested in that stuff at all. That's my least 
Austin Stoll. Austin Stoll from Whiplash and stuff. Yeah. yeah. I just don't care about any of that stuff. No. Unfortunately, it's it's imperative. Like yeah. you can't you, you can't get Hanks to Berlin and there needs to be stakes. So you need it. I'm just not crazy about the way that he handles it. Because we, we get really invested in Hanks and Rylance, and then all of a sudden we jump over to all the Air Force dudes, yeah. and then we have this really kind of clunky, surprisingly lifeless mid-air crash scene, yeah. which is just sort of like CGI gobbledygook, and mm-hmm. it's it's weird to see a Steven Spielberg action sequence that feels so boring, Yeah, um, which kind of reinforces the fact that it doesn't seem like he's particularly invested in that, mm-hmm. and as a result, neither am I. <laughs> um, and then we go over to Berlin, and we lose Ryland, and I mean, the movie's just like jumping around. It's, it's, it's It has tonal issues, it has pacing issues, yeah. and it has um, conflict issues, like you said, stakes issues. Yeah, and another part of the stakes issues that just sort of dawned on me now is, as, as much as we love Ryland, Violence as good as he is, his character doesn't give a shit. He's like his so, character is like he's so tuned out. He's like, okay, like whatever happens, would happens, it, man. Would it help? Yeah. And, and so while you do care about him, you're like, okay, well, if he doesn't, if he's fine with whatever happens, <laughs> then I guess you know, great. I guess you know, it doesn't really matter to us. That's then. a really good point. I never thought about <laughs> that way. That's interesting because yeah, he's like this crazy, like Zen hippie spy who just like, and again. Hanks probably is, or uh, James Donovan probably is conflicted and probably does have insecurities, but like we said, he needs to project something to be a good negotiator. Rylance's character, Abel, probably is scared and probably does fear for his life, but in order to um, sort of survive in this situation he's been thrown into, he has to project a certain kind of like... Aloofness. Or lackadaisicalness or whatever, and would it help? Would it help? Well, the boss isn't always right, but he is always the boss. Like he's got these platitudes and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes him so fascinating. And because he's a supporting character, he doesn't have to carry yeah. the way that Hanks is expected to. And as a result, we just really get interested in him. And he ended up winning an Oscar for this because he's just like this eccentric screen presence mm-hmm. whose delivery is just so unique. Yeah. And yeah, for many of us, this was really our introduction to Rylance, even mm-hmm. though he was already a legend on um, the stage and also in. Um, you know, British film and television, yeah. much more so than here. Now he's a now he's a household name stateside, famous for one. I guess one of the all-time supporting actor Oscar upsets, right? I mean, Sly, Sly was Sly was supposed to win that fucker, but you were you were confident with Rylance all the way till the end. Well, I had him on my team. You so did. I was a little biased, and I agree that character is is weird in ways that might potentially be a problem. Rylance is just so interesting. Yeah. Just you just hang on his every fucking word. And when he finally does reunite with Hanks on the titular bridge, I get really emotional about that. Like when they see each other and he yeah. and he goes over, it's like I am totally invested in that relationship. And I'm trying to figure out how you could have potentially done this movie where you made it really about that bromance. Yeah, right? I mean because that's the to me that's the heart and beating heart and soul of the movie. Maybe, you know, maybe this movie ended up exactly as Spielberg wanted it to, and it's just a kind of an oddity of a film, right? And that's fine. Yeah. Like it's, it, did, it got nominated for Best Picture. I know it was sort of Oscar bait. Six Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. You know, I don't think this movie tons of people are passionate about. At least that's not my feeling right now. I don't feel like this is, you know, when people say Spielberg, they're not like, oh, Bridge of Spies is one of my favorite Spielberg movies. Right. Um, this movie already seems to have been forgotten quite a little bit. You know, it's almost yeah. similar to War Horse in that way. Yeah. But dissimilar from War Horse, and then it's a good movie. Yeah, it's a good movie with a lowercase g, yeah. for sure. Like, it's not something I'm, I'm, I was super passionate about revisiting, but it's a very enjoyable sit. 
Like yeah. it's a very handsome movie, you know. Like it, it's indicative it's of this yeah. late period Spielberg that we're kind of talking ta- talking about this house money stuff, yeah. where it's just like he's got all the resources in the world. Mm-hmm. He's got the world's most famous movie star, yeah. you know, at his beck and on speed dial. Yeah. He can go anywhere in the world. He can get all the resources. He's got Janusz Kaminski. Like he's got it. He's got all the toys. Mm-hmm. And there's certain kind of pie in the sky humanistic moral fables yeah. that he wants to explore. And it's fun. Yeah, like I said, he loves historical. Do- documents obviously nice period. I yeah. mean it, it's fun hanging out with Hanks you get some good Alan Alda scenes mm-hmm. you know Amy Ryan is always fun to have around and Mark Rylance so yeah like I said it's a really good sit and you know I think it's telling I've enjoyed this I've seen this movie I think three times now I've enjoyed it more every time Yeah. Um, so I think that's important so yeah the first time I saw it I was like it's kind of boring I'm not sure what the deal is it's not what I expected it to be Yeah. but once you realize that it's not going to be some big flashy whiz bang thing then I think you can sit you know sit in and enjoy it it's a good movie to like watch. I like have watched this movie with my parents like the day after Christmas. You yeah, know? like it's a good movie to watch with a big group of family or whatever. It's a comfy, it's a comfy couch movie, and by that I don't necessarily mean you need to be sitting in a comfy couch when yeah. you watch it. But a lot of scenes in the movie involve people sitting in very comfortable looking chairs yeah. having discussions. It's, it's, a, it's a good winter movie. Yes, right? I really much. wouldn't sit down during the summer to watch this. I mean, we were making fun of the fact that he's got the cold, and that's kind of like his yeah. main character trait. But I'll tell you what, you feel. A, you feel the cold in Berlin. It looks yeah. fucking freezing. Mm-hmm. And Hanks really sells that cold. Like, God, this is one of my all-time greats. No all-time one plays great. a cold no like Hanks. Right? That's why he's the best. That's why he gets the big bucks. Not a short movie. 141 minutes. They made it for $40 million, Made 165 Spielberg doesn't make flops. Although we're going to talk about one next year. <laughs> the Glanicky Bridge. They actually did shoot that climactic scene on the Glanicky Bridge. Uh, the working title for the film was St. James Place. Not sure exactly what that refers to. It might be something in Brooklyn Heights in New York where um, Abel apparently lived and worked and where a lot of the movie was shot. Interesting. Not quite sure what... I mean, it was obviously a uh, one of those working title, you know, like uh, security titles, yeah. right? So that people wouldn't skulking around the set. I love all the stoiky musique, you know, standing sure. man stuff. It's yeah. a really wonderful... They're just great motifs. They're just great running mm-hmm. line. You know, that's a, and I think that's a Cohen thing. Recurring, yeah. would it help? Would it help? He's not always right, but he's always the boss. Stoicky music, standing man. Um, yeah, I mean, Rylance and Hanks in the first half of this movie, like there, there are a lot of laugh lines. Like it's, it's yeah. pretty funny. There's a lot of like nervous, la- you know, because again, the guy's like on trial for his life, but he seems so mm-hmm. tuned out about it. It is one of the all-time great Spielberg opening sequences, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's basically dialogueless, mm-hmm. you know, like there isn't a, a really a line of dialogue for the first 10 minutes of the movie and Ryan is just going about his business and all the little, you know, spy minutia and the little, um, uh, you know, the microfilm or whatever that he's keeping inside the nickel. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is fun. It's all it's all good solid New York period stuff. I don't know. It's it's an it's an oddity. I wouldn't call it like a, an outlier film necessarily because it was a hit. It was nominated for Oscars. People seem to, critics all seem to be pretty impressed yeah. with it. So, it's very much indicative of this period yeah whereas the next one i feel is more of an outlier weirdly because 20 years ago it would have seemed like straight down the middle obvious popular yeah. spielberg stuff right well let's let's go to it all right um the bfg rip that band-aid off um i don't want to talk about this movie too much matt <laughs> um roll doll uh adaptation this is a this is a movie for little children it's a ch- children's movie it's yeah. a children's movie different than a lot of other spielberg children's you know ostensibly children's movies this is not for adults, right? This is this the most specifically positioned and pitched children's movie he ever made. More so than Hook, more so than E.T. 
is this his most quote unquote childish movie? I mean, I, I don't think he went into it saying, you know what, fuck the adults. I'm not gonna. They're not gonna enjoy this movie. This one's only for the kids. I think he probably went into it like he went into E.T. E. and yeah. Hook and whatever, mm-hmm. saying like this should be a, a family film. It'll be good for kids, but also I want the adults to enjoy it too, or at least I would assume. That's the case. But it didn't work out like that. This movie was kind of in development hell for a long time. It yeah, seemed like decades. Kathleen Kennedy, Frank Marshall had the rights for a long time, then then lost them. Yeah, I think a lot of people tried to crack this nut, and uh, they finally went through with it, and it just didn't uh, didn't really work. I think it's a love letter to Melissa Matheson at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that Melissa Matheson, who wrote E.T., who was you know, a lifelong friend and collaborator, was married to Harrison Ford for a number of years. I'm, I'm projecting here a little bit, and I'm this is... This might be, um, you know, falsified history on my part, but feel like Spielberg felt that Melissa Matheson never got the credit she deserved. He got all the credit for E.T., right? Yeah. He and Drew Barrymore and Henry Thomas and John Williams, like they got all the credit for E.T. It was the biggest hit of all time yeah. at the time. And people didn't talk about how brilliant Melissa Matheson's script was. Mm-hmm. And I think as a result, he always wanted to go back and celebrate her in some way and work with her again. And she was super passionate about the BFG. And she passed away, I think, in 2015. Yeah. And to me, this feels like Steven Spielberg's eulogy to his friend Melissa Matheson because I wonder how she the gets... timeline works there. Like, if, if she she the script was done, she died, and he's like, fuck, I just gotta have to make this now. Yeah, well, I think it's very similar to the Kubrick thing, right? Yeah. With AI, where it's yeah. like Kubrick passed away. is like, all right, I need to honor... Like, he, he fast-tracked AI. He, like, he had all these other films. Yeah. He always has half a dozen films in the pipeline but he fast-tracked AI because like now is the time to do this because Kubrick's at the forefront of my mind and of everyone's mind to me this just seems like this movie maybe shouldn't necessarily have been made this book is potentially unadaptable yeah but he wanted to honor his friend and he wanted to make sure she got one more like one more of her scripts got produced posthumously his heart was obviously pure in intention yeah I mean I wouldn't say it's unadaptable I mean I think we've seen you've read the book uh, yeah, I mean, well, 30 years ago sure. or whatever. Right. Um, and I've heard that it's not really a... It's like barely a yeah, book. Yeah, it's tiny. There's no real narrative to it. But, I mean, we've seen Roald Dahl adaptations. We've seen Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That works. We've seen, uh, you know, Fantastic Mr. Fox, which is kind of the perfect type of adaptation for yeah. Roald Dahl. I mean, you have to have some quirkiness. You have to have some teeth. It has to be somewhat adult. What I think makes Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Fantastic Mr. Fox work is that they're willing to take the template as a jumping off point, yeah. especially Fantastic Mr. Fox, where like you can feel Wes Anderson and Noah Baumbach's personalities yeah. filling in a pretty mm-hmm. thin conceit, right? Yeah. Whereas this, to me, just seems like a direct... There's very little there there. There's, you know? there's almost no story in this movie, yeah. and it, it really plods along. And so that, I mean, that's the big issue. Just the story narrative doesn't work very well. And yet still comes in at 117 minutes, which is way too long for a kid's movie. Way too long for a kid's movie. <laughs> I don't think the actress, the, the human actress, is very good at all. Alright, Ruby Barnhill. The movie really lives or dies by her. Obviously, Rylance is the titular character. Well, it, it's hard Spielberg. for her. Like, this is like a Jake Lloyd situation. You're, she, she's, what, seven years old? Yeah. She's working on like, green screen the entire time? Never really acted in a movie before. Uh, I think she's just 10 years old. I think she's adorable. Plus, she's got the cutest name ever, Ruby Barnhill. I like her. I think she's fun. I think she's cute. I I like her delivery. I I have a soft spot for child actors. I do, although, yeah, when I think when I think back on it, he he almost always nails it with child actors. I mean, that's one of his that's That's one of his great strengths, right? I'm I'm having a hard time thinking of any that didn't really work. I mean, I guess you could look at Lost World. 
Yeah. Although that's just a terribly written, it was an unnecessary bad extraneous movie. character, bad movie. Even in Hook, all the kids are good. Yeah, Hook. absolutely. I don't know. I like Ruby Barnhill. I think she works. She's one of the things that that I that I like about mm-hmm. a movie that I don't like very much. Yeah. And I do get invested in her relationship with Rylance. And I think I just don't think she has a lot to work with, which is one of the issues that were sort of like one of those larger overarching issues with this film. But I certainly don't have a problem with her. I think she's cute. All right. I think she's fun. Well, let me go on some other grievances. Please. Um, I don't. I don't like the CGI in this movie. I think it's kind of creepy and weird, and <laughs> ineffective, ineffective. You're talking about the Rylance motion capture, yeah. Or just everything, 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 but especially all the mocaps. Okay. Stuff. I don't. I don't really enjoy that very much at all. Yeah, that's it. I honestly like. I, I watched this for the first time very recently, mm-hmm. and I hated it. I just straight <laughs> up hated it, and I can't say the same for like. Maybe one or two other Spielberg. I don't want to ruin my rankings here, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, I I'm pretty upset. And it, <laughs> this and, movie has made you upset. You know, this I guarantee they went in. It's like, oh, this is gonna be a slam dunk. This is gonna make whole sorts of money. It's a Spielberg kids roll doll mashup. And also, his first time directing a film for Disney. Like yeah. he obviously produced things. You know, Disney had yeah. been touch, touchstone or whatever. This is a Disney and Amblin movie for yeah. the first time ever, and I think there was like an Indian consortium as well that was putting sure. up some money for this thing, <laughs> which is not insignificant because it's one of his mo- one of the most expensive movies he ever made at 140 million. It does not work, and I've I, this is my third. I think it's my second or third time seeing it, and every every time I watch it, I dislike it, but I find it so fascinating because I can't quite put my finger on why it doesn't work. On paper, this all makes sense because is is it just the fact that the that the narrative is so thin? Is it just the fact that it's completely reliant on mocap? I mean, this is clearly him high on his Tintin mocap, right? I, Wanting he to probably ex- shouldn't have been, but <laughs> but to me, it seems like he's like, okay, I got these two new toys. I got this mocap that I love, yeah. and I got the greatest actor in the world, right? <laughs> I'm gonna combine my two new favorite things, mocap and Rylance. Like, yeah, I'm gonna, yeah. you know, it's gonna be like peanut butter and chocolate. It's gonna be perfect. How can yeah. this not work? It's just an experiment. It's an sure. experiment that he tries here. And then he goes further in a different direction with Ready Player One, with Rylance again. But yeah, this movie is a huge fiasco across the board. I mean, it's, it, you know, there's got Bill Hader and Jemaine Clement and Adam Godley, like all these very talented, very funny yeah. character actors with incredible voices who are just, they're boring. Yeah. They're all so boring. I just don't care about anything that's going on. It's, and there's these big, crazy set pieces that just are just uh, misguided. Yeah, you know? I mean, if, if, you look, Silly. if you look at the bad movies in, in Spielberg's oeuvre, very few of yeah, them are boring. At, at least there's sort of there's something to grab onto. There's, there's some sort of manicness to them that yeah. you're like, okay, this is fun at least. Yeah. It's eye candy at least. And this is boring. Boring. Straight up and boring. bad. Yeah. No, you're right. This is... This is probably amongst his most boring films, which is that's an unforgivable sin from yep. this man, right? I mean, if, like, I mean, I always talk about how the very first thing that Schindler's List is is entertaining, even at three hours, and that's its maybe its greatest secret weapon. Mm-hmm. But yeah, at, at 117 minutes with very little story and a central relationship that's flimsy at best, and a bunch of villains who aren't particularly formidable or interesting and set pieces that just are a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing yep. <laughs> and a whole subplot going off and dealing with the queen yeah. which apparently is straight from the book yeah um rebecca hall shows up for some reason and a bunch of flatulence like so much flatulence kind of farting, yeah. flat dog flatulence queen flatulence mm-hmm. it's really it's a gross movie which i know is a um, that's a roll doll thing yeah so he's being he's, at least he's being consistent to the source material there 
but um, not a good movie. But sort of on the subject of playing with house money, this is really the only straight-up financial failure of the man's career. Nobody made a fuss about it because that was the year that uh, Finding Dory came out and became, you know, like became the highest-grossing animated film of all time. And I think one of the Captain Americas, or, or maybe was 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 Age of Ultron. Maybe. Some big Marvel movie was one or two big was Marvel in 2016. Yeah. yeah, so this movie lost like a hundred million dollars or something, and it, that barely made a blip on the radar because Disney had one of their greatest years ever. Well, I'm seeing budget at 140, box office of 183 worldwide, yeah. but obviously there's hundreds of millions of dollars in marketing in there. I mean, this is probably a 140 million dollar movie with 150 spent on advertising. Yeah. So this is probably someone had to clear 300 to see a profit. Yeah. Um. You know, when you take into account home video sales kids movies tend to do way better home video sales so i you know that's true i'm not sure. saying it made a profit but probably fairly negligible for at least in disney's eyes right yeah and he gets a pass at this point well that's that's why i brought it up because we're calling this episode playing with house money it should be a bigger deal that yeah. a guy who literally has an impeccable track record financially mm-hmm. finally has a pretty big bomb yeah nobody really said anything about yeah. it. i mean this movie he was, he was he was doing a sleeper agent thing to disney <laughs> <laughs> well, this movie came out over Fourth of July weekend in 2016. It actually premiered at Cannes, which is kind of weird. And then it uh, came out over Fourth of July weekend in 2016, and it it, uh, it was number four at the box office opening weekend. Yeah, and I didn't, didn't lose to Purge. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't do a deep enough box office mojo dive to to, <laughs> to figure out what what's the lowest a Spielberg film has ever opened at. Yeah. But this has got to be right there near the bottom. Let's, you know? Yeah. I'll take a look. You okay. keep talking. I've never met anybody who likes the BFG. I don't have. I don't. There aren't a lot of children in my life, but I would be interested in talking to someone who was 11 years old at the time to find out if they got really into it. There are moments that are verging on, you know, magical Spielberg stuff. I mean, the fact that the BFG is literally a dream weaver, like his his job is DreamWorks, if yeah. you will, yeah. is kind of cute and fun. And uh, there are some pretty incredible visuals. And, you know, Kaminsky's doing his thing with his super hot backlights and stuff. So there are moments that just sort of scratch the surface of being something fun and Spielberg-y. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, nothing really clicks with this thing. Yeah. It's got a, a, you know, a, a relatively disposable John Williams score. Oh, we forgot to mention that Bridge of Spies, only the second film mm-hmm. John Williams has not scored in yeah. Spielberg's oeuvre. We're going to have two movies in this episode that don't have a John Williams score. Because he's in his 80s. Isn't it weird to think that there may come a point where I mean, he may pass away while Spielberg's still making movies? And well, let's hope the, I just the don't new live in that world. Jones comes out first. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, we need one more. We know he's doing one more Star Wars, and we need him to do one more Indiana Jones. Yeah. Yeah, the Bridge of Spies score, as much as I love Thomas Newman, and that's saying a lot that Spielberg, who had only ever worked with John Williams, really decided to go with Thomas Newman. Yeah. That's an incredible vote of confidence. for. Th- I love Thomas Newman, but that's really interesting to go that direction instead of, you know, going Danny Elfman or Hans Zimmer. Or, or even like uh, Michael Giacchino or something. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Thomas Newman. Wow. He's back with John Williams this time around. It's it's basically like a, a mashup between Hook and Home Alone, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Um, or maybe you know a little bit of Harry Potter thrown in there. Always, this is basically his lowest grossing movie on like full opening weekend with like a full release. A lot okay. of his movies had limited releases, but makes sense. Warhorse is is worse than BFG. Is it? Yeah, it came out at number five or something. I can't tell what number it came out of, but it, it only grossed seven point five million on twenty three hundred screens in its opening weekend. That's crazy. Ten of those are mine. I was op- I was there opening weekend for Warhorse. I know that for sure. God damn it, that's weak. All right, let's move on from BFG. Okay. Uh, the very next year, twenty seventeen. Set the table. 
to be frank here, he films Ready Player One. Yes. And then he films the post, and the post is a lot easier to uh, finish up in, in post. So maybe we should we should interweave these two conversations about these two movies, oh, seeing that's as too he was. Complicated. <laughs> I don't think we should do that. No, you don't want to cross cut between no, these two let's movies. No, not do that. Uh, I mean, Cloud can, Atlas style. You can do that in, uh, in editing if you'd like. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, chronologically speaking, the post would come next, despite the fact he had already shot Ready Player One by this yes. point. Yes. And so, yeah, the movie about the release of the Pentagon papers through the viewpoint of the Washington Post and its uh, its power players. Yeah, this is an interesting movie to me. It's pretty good, but the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking I'd rather be watching Spotlight or All the President's Men. Sure. And that is what I come down to this movie. It's like, he, he took on this subject and he just used kid gloves. He used the most like Spielbergian sort of nostalgia not getting into the muck uh, bullshit that he, they can do sometimes, and you know th- this could have been some. This could have been his, like we said, the checklist earlier. This could have been his his newspaper movie, right? Okay. And his journalist movie. He never gets you know deep enough to me in the investigation and the discovering of the Pentagon Papers. I wish this movie was about Bob Odenkirk's character, hmm. right? It's, it is for a second. It is for, for a second. It's it's very concerned with Bob Odenkirk. Yeah, and the central conceit of of the narrative is. Will they publish it? Yeah, is a pretty it's pretty weak because we know they're going to publish it, right? Okay. Like that's it's never. You, could you say that about any historical? I mean, Lincoln, you know, they're going to pass the amendment, right? The Thirteenth yeah, Amendment. But it's about how they pass the amendment, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a procedural about how they're going to get there. So in other words, this one's just about hand wringing over whether, like, when they're going to that, do that it. That is what all the conflicts are, right? It's yeah. just talking between lawyers or the execs or whoever about, like, don't publish it, don't publish it, don't right. publish it. Right. It's like, I don't know, maybe they'll publish it. <laughs> um, but like, you know, you look at Spotlight. Isn't it? It's yeah, the procedural at, about at point. It's about Leo Shriver saying. We're not ready to publish it. Mm-hmm. We can't do this yet. Right? Yeah. You, you don't have it. But Which is also what All the President's Men is about. Yes. It's about Ben Bradley saying, we're not there yet. Yeah. We're not going to publish things until you guys have all the information. Yeah, all the information. Over, yeah. And so, But it's about the process of getting there. Yeah. And this movie is, you know, except for some very few Odenkirk scenes, it's really not about that. Which is sort of my big frustration because that's what I love about these kinds of movies, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I said, All the President's Men, Spotlight, Zodiac, like those kind of movies. Is is that's what I want? So maybe I was looking for a different kind of movie than Spielberg was trying to make here. Mm-hmm. But even then, like, I think the the ceiling is pretty low for my enjoyment of this movie going in, given that that's what they decided to base the movie around. Okay, I'll buy that. There's another one, kind of like British Spies, where I, it's hard for me to have really strong feelings about it. And I think it goes into our theme here of just playing with house money, right? Famously, Spielberg read the script in March of 2017. And by December of that same year, the movie was premiering in New York. And then uh, a month later, it already had, was nominated for Best Picture. So less than a year after Spielberg reading the script, this movie had a Best Picture nomination. It's an impressive feat of uh, getting the band together and making a movie. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it's a mistake. I'm also not crazy about the movie. I certainly respect it. And a lot of that respect just comes from, like you said, the feat of being able to do this. And in terms of playing with House Money... He is the only guy who can do this. Yeah. I mean, Steven Soderbergh can make stuff happen pretty quickly because he's going to shoot it with an iPhone or whatever, <laughs> yeah. and he's he's not necessarily going to cast Tom Hanks. Although, interestingly enough, Steven Soderbergh's next movie has Meryl Streep in it. So, yes, he manages to cobble all this stuff together over a, you know, a few months, and they shoot it really fast, and uh, John Williams actually did write the score this time around. And the next thing you know, we got this movie that uh, critics seem to fawn over, but I got a sneaking suspicion that a lot of that had to do with topicality, right? Sure. This was just... And that's why he wanted to make it so fast, right? Yeah. He's just like, this movie needs to be made now because this movie speaks to now. Yeah. 
which happens all the time, and that's mm-hmm. fine. But I would love to have seen this movie in the oven for another year. Sure. Right? Lisa, Liz Hanna writes this thing, and it seems like it's about ready to go. At least it was ready to go far enough that they would put it in Spielberg's hands. And then they get Josh Singer, who wrote Spotlight, to come in and polish it. But imagine if Josh Singer and Liz Hanna had had another four months to work yeah. on this thing together, right? Instead of rushing this into production. Everything about this feels rushed. Mm-hmm. And as a result, it feels a little bit um, slapdash. Feels a little small. Yeah. Are you wondering if slapdash is a I was about to say, I don't think that's a real <laughs> term. What, I don't know what I the term is. Like, okay. Yeah. But it's it's fine. It, it's, a, it's a hard movie to dislike because everybody is doing their thing and doing their thing perfectly well but yeah small is probably a a good way to put it It, it, interestingly enough it is one of my favorite Meryl Streep performances in the last decade it's certainly better than The Iron Lady I mean if I was given the choice I'd much rather she would have won her second third Oscar for this movie instead of The Iron Lady yeah well Streep is fantastic and I think she's the best character in the movie she's the most complex character the most nuanced like she's a powerful woman but doesn't have the sort of cliche characteristics of film powerful women she's yeah. ambivalent she's unsure of herself but she's remaining strong and she's got a nice arc throughout tom hanks is good and yeah. it's a fun character for him to play but everyone else is kind of stock especially the the, the bad guy especially the antagonist your bradley whitford's all these other execs, the <laughs> yes. lawyers they're all they, they, they don't have a lot of nuance to them at all well it's kind of like what we talked about when we talked about first man that in Kyle Chandler's character, they were like, you know, we should get a Kyle Chandler type for this character. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we just get Kyle Chandler? Yeah. This is literally, let's get a Bradley Whitford type. And they're <laughs> yeah. like, well, Bradley Whitford's available. You just, just call him up. Yeah, it's very... St- I mean, as my, and as much as I love Carrie Coon, who I think is brilliant and married to Tracy Letts, who's also in this movie, that character just bugs me. And that scene <laughs> bugs me so much. When she does the thing on the phone and she delivers this... And she just, she's got this self-satisfied... I just really dislike that, <laughs> that sequence so much. And yeah. I think it's so... It, it's Spielberg's worst impulses working. Sure. And to me, it feels like, again, if the script had a little more time in the oven or if he'd had more time to think about this, if he'd had more time in the editing room, he probably would have realized he didn't need that moment. Yeah. Or at least he should reshoot that moment or re- redesign it or something. And this movie's full of stuff like that. Yeah. It's just like, God, I wish they had just spent a little more time on this. I know that he feels like doing this this quickly mm-hmm. kind of made him into a younger more vibrant it, you know it, it well, freed he, him up to become a run and gun kind of guerrilla filmmaker and, and I'm sure he's doing that so he's just doing whatever to make him uncomfortable or yeah. like yeah and that has worked before I mean that's he, he he and Lucas claim that's why Raiders worked yeah was because they had very little money they had to go fast you know Harrison Ford was dying of dysentery yeah. you know like they had to they had to kind of like make this stuff happen quick and kind of like reconceive what t- type of filmmakers they wanted to be yeah and this time around, I feel like he got really excited about this thing, but as a result, the movie feels half-baked. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate because, the ca- I mean, you're wasting so many great actors yeah. and sort of stuff. I mean, Bruce Greenwood, Sarah Paulson, Bob and David together, which is yeah. pretty fun. Well, I mean, because, because Reese, it like, basically that. suggests that Spielberg is a Mr. Show fan, right? <laughs> I, I hope so. Or at least, you know, <laughs> Ellen Lewis or Juliet, probably Juliet. Taylor was the uh, casting director on this, but because it's a New York movie. But yeah, it suggests that somebody involved in that it loves uh, Mr. Show. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, Matthew Reese. Matthew Reese is probably my favorite performance in the movie. He's good. Meryl Streep is wonderful, but I I just want an entire movie about Matthew Reese. Yeah. Like, and for a second, the movie is about Matthew. Like, this movie keeps focusing on one specific character and sort of getting into something interesting and provocative, but then it remembers it has to deal with all these other things, Mm -hmm. and as a result. It's. I'm going to keep using this term, slapdash. You even get right? that with a like Bruce Greenwood's character, super interesting potentially. Yeah. yeah. But 
not very I mean, at some point, we'll get a Bob McNamara biopic, right? I assume so, yeah. There's an incredible documentary that Errol Morris made that I'm sure you've seen called The Fog of War. Yes. Which is basically a Bob McNamara biopic. <laughs> but yeah, there's just those just moments of, of magic, and most of them revolve around really great performances, because this is really a, probably one of, one of Spielberg's best acted films yeah i would say i mean like like we said it's it doesn't spend enough time with any of them with the exception of meryl streep that they can make as much of an impression as we'd like yeah but there are performances movie performances in the movie where you're like oh i mean he can get the best in the business and they can do that for yeah well 30 seconds can, like zach woods and jesse Plemons yeah. show up at the end of the movie again yeah. we need a zach woods type for this character <laughs> colin um that's really funny that it almost looks like stunt casting the two of them yeah. it's it's really cute um, but yeah, just to go back to Matthew Reese for a second, the movie opens, I mean, basically the first 20 minutes of the movie is about him, right? Yeah. This movie has one of the worst opening scenes in a Spielberg movie. <laughs> it literally opens with Creedence Clearwater. Yeah. Where you're just like, oh boy. Why are we doing this? <laughs> Needle drop uh, of the worst order. And luckily it, it's, it smooths out pretty quickly mm-hmm. and it pretty quickly finds its groove and it gets into Matthew Reese on Air Force One or whatever and then running around West Hollywood and do it. It's one of the all-time great Xerox scenes, right? Oh, yeah. It's a great it's a great <laughs> Xerox. It's a lot like The Firm, you know. <laughs> Tense movies with a copy machine. So I love all that stuff and I love the stuff between him and Odenkirk, but this movie has to serve way too many masters narratively. What, what's the running time here? 160 minutes? It's not long. It's not long. It's, 100, it's less than two hours, which is very rare for Spielberg to make a movie comes in under less than and two hours. with this, I mean... The subject matter, it felt like you could make a three-hour movie about this. 100%. And, and, it, and it could be intense and really good, right? Like, yeah. it doesn't delve all that much into the politics of this stuff. I mean, a little bit, but, like, getting into, you know, the 30-year history, why uh, staying in Vietnam was bad, like, the, the machinations of the, uh, of the power players here. Like, getting into the, the nitty-gritty there is not something this movie's all that interested in. Yeah. Which is something that I would love to see and sort of, you know, uh, more you know more heavily investigated by your Odenkirk types, right? Yeah. More of the why as opposed to, like, let's just get it out there. Yeah, that is interesting because this movie suggests five interesting movies, yeah. right? And you could go out. At one point, Hanks even picks up a handful of these papers and says there's... There's, you know, 10 different stories in here. We just need to find the most, you know, we need to find one of them and print it um, just so we can get started. And that's kind of how the movie feels. It's like suggesting all these interesting little movies. I want to see the Matthew Reeves movie. I want to see the Bob Odenkirk movie. I want to see the Bob McNamara biopic. I mean, I want to see the movie about the guy at the New York Times who writes the story mm-hmm. that there's Neil, Neil, whoever, right? Yeah. I, don't, I can't remember the name of the, the yeah, it's yeah. a real guy, Neil, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll think of it. But yeah, and then they send the kid, they send the intern over to go like yeah. spy at the New York Times. I want to see that movie. You could have too. a Michael Stuhlbarg movie. Yeah, he's really funny. <laughs> I mean, we talked during the Lincoln episode about how Spielberg's in a place where literally he he, he gets whoever he wants, mm-hmm. and even the smallest character is going to be one of our great character actors. Yeah. This is an unbelievably stacked cast. It just all the people we've just talked about already Allison Brie, mm-hmm. Pat Healy's in there, uh, yeah, the aforementioned uh, Tracy Letts. It's mm-hmm. just, it's a crazy cast. But as a result, the movie kind of becomes a little top-heavy and yeah. a little unwieldy. It's crazy because when it came out, it was this, I think it won the National Board of Review Prize, right? It was one of those situations where the movie hadn't even come out yet. It had only screened for critics and then just immediately started winning awards. And so we're like, all right, I here we go. I guess Spielberg's got another Best Picture contender on his hands. I guess this is going to happen. Meryl Streep's going to win. Tom Hanks is at least going to get yeah. nominated. Best actor, best actress, actress, best film at National Board of Review. Yeah. yeah. Uh, critics were just fawning over it at the risk of sounding cynical. 
this is a film about journalists, right? Yeah. So I think journalists really <laughs> responded to it immediately. About journalists, about writers, that's all you need. And about freedom of speech. And, yeah. you know, again, this is part of his Constitution stuff. So all the messages are there, but the filmmaking is, um, is a little bit shoddy, mm-hmm. I would say, compared to his best stuff. So it makes an interesting double feature with Bridge of Spies because it's yeah. like handsome, competent... You know him, him doing his thing better than most people do. Certainly, yeah. I mean, I, I, I would. But just leaves you wanting. Yes, one hundred percent. How do you feel about the ending? How do you feel about the Nixon stuff? Uh, I think it's fine. I think it's trying to play on topical issues, obviously, yeah. allusions to perhaps our current president. Sure. Um, I think it's fine. Again, like from the beginning, like will they publish it being like the triumphant thing? Like I knew the ending was gonna feel a little flat no matter what, but I think they tidy it up. Okay. I mean, the fetishization of the printing presses and stuff is yeah. all fun because yeah. that's when he just gets really kinetic. I mean, yeah. that's that's the action sequences, right? With yeah. the exception of the pretty. I do like, like the printing press. The printing press stuff is fun, <laughs> and when Odenkirk is sitting at his desk and he starts to feel like when his yeah. his desk starts to shake, that that stuff's fun. But I could really do without the Watergate stuff mm-hmm. at the end. I get that that's perfunctory, and then yeah. I guess you kind of do need to make that suggestion. Yeah. But I I could do without it, or at least I'd love to see it handled in a more nuanced way. God, I want. I want Odenkirk to, like, I feel like Odenkirk is prime for some sort of Oscar-winning role, right? I thought this was going to happen. When I when I started seeing the trailers for this, and I started, you know, I just was like, you know what? I could see, I mean, you know, he's obviously on Better Call Saul yeah. now. I was just like, and I think he was almost there. Yeah. I think one more great Odenkirk scene in this movie, and he at least gets nominated. I put him on my team that year because yeah. I was like, you know what? I think he's close. And he is fantastic. He's wonderful. I, again, I think just one more scene, and you absolutely... You absolutely nominate the guy. Mm-hmm. Just, the movie just doesn't have time for that. All right. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's do it. Ready Player One. Dude, this is our last This is our last Spielberg movie. I, I, <laughs> part of me wants to filibuster so we don't have to end this thing. <laughs> uh, well, it's a weird one to end on, and yet at the same time, it's kind of the perfect one to end I kinda on. Li- I kind of like ending on this one, actually. Yeah. Um, when we started this series, mm-hmm. we did not have a post or a Ready Player One, right? Yeah. When we started this series, we were up through the BFG. And isn't it isn't it great we get to end on Ready Player One instead of the BFG? It's <laughs> Thank so God nice. for that. So <laughs> kudos to us for dragging our feet with this thing. Um, so when I first saw this movie, I, I I was pretty anti the film, if you remember. I just read the book and I really hated the book. Um, it was just like I said, reference porn. You know, I'm getting older, I'm getting softer. <laughs> and upon rewatch, I've softened quite a bit on this movie. I hope, um, I hope you're glad to hear. I it. am glad to hear it because I I was the Defender, and you were the you were the voice of consternation during our review. Yeah, exactly a year ago, it came out a year ago next month. Nice. Yeah. For all this movie's faults, and has a great many, it is a very fun watch. Yeah. And and I think that is kind of the long and short of it. I mean, that you know, there are there are a number of cringeworthy scenes to my mind. There's you know some reference offs that really bother me. There are uh, the dance scene I kind of hate, <laughs> but there's more than enough here to have an enjoyable film. And it, it of course it's all very silly. It's all pretty stupid. Yep. Working within that sandbox, I think you have to give it up for for Spielberg here because. I'm not sure how many people could have pulled this off. Yeah, I was thinking about it the other day. Like, who would have been on the short list for something like this? All things being equal, everybody gets the same amount of budget. Yeah. Edgar Wright. Yeah. Um, J.J. Abrams. Yeah. Uh, Matt Reeves. I mean, I, I'm thinking of a few people who could, like, pull enough water to make a movie like this. And I'm interested in seeing that version. 
but I really don't think this exists on this level, on this scale, with these kinds of special effects without no. the biggest name in the business, right? He nails it. Like Even from the get-go, the very beginning, there's a lot of exposition to get through. And he kind of he kind of does it like uh, kind of almost remind me of the beginning of like Fellowship of the Ring or something. Sure. Like it's just incredible visuals while this litany yeah. of like explaining the world is going on, but it works. It's like super efficient. You get through it really quickly, and then you're caught up within whatever five minutes of the beginning of the movie. From from then on out, you're in this world. And as much as I don't like Ernest Cline or his books, like the central idea of this movie is. Captivating, yeah. right? Like it's it, it it works as like an idea, and it's something cool and something different enough in this sort of futurist, near future sci-fi. Right? If you're gonna ape Willy Wonka or Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I yes. guess this is a pretty fun way to do it. Yeah, you know, like he say what you want about Ernest Cline, he had a really good timely idea. Yeah, took it as far as he po- I mean, he took it to the end, you know, to mm-hmm. its logical conclusion, right? Like he took it as far as he possibly could. His approach and his ideas bring up a lot of issues, and this movie became a flashpoint for discussion about these issues, which is fine, Mm -hmm. but if you, I don't even want to say turn your brain off, but if you just want to sort of downshift your cynicism for a couple of hours and just give yourself over to the one guy who can do this on this level, Mm -hmm. there's really nothing cynical about this movie at all. No. And I think that Spielberg's kind of like pie-in-the-sky optimist. I mean, think about the fact that Spielberg has basically been a millionaire for the last 30 years of his life. He's living in a mm-hmm. different you know he's not on Twitter he's not concerned with all these things that people who are sort yeah. of like he has, his feet haven't touched the pavement for 30 years right yeah. for better or for worse so he's coming at this stuff from a I, I had the first uh, Pong cabinet in my apartment when I was 27 years old or whatever right yeah. and I was a, a millionaire and I've you know always kind of been married and had kids and not really you know was never into drugs and not that political and He's just he's just coming at this stuff from a place of spectacle mm-hmm. and wanting to play in this crazy video game sandbox that interests him. Like he's been interested in video games since the very beginning. Yeah. But not necessarily in investigating the politics of video games. Sure. Or the social issues that come with Gamergate or Pizzagate or you know any of these yeah. various social sexual politics or anything like that. So this movie is just really kind of old-fashioned in that way, right? And that's part of the reason that I really like it because it gives me an... It's not just about escapism. It's about sort of being able to just watch this guy do what he does for two hours and 20 minutes on a scale that we haven't seen him do in a while. And it's so much better than Kingdom of the Crystal Skull or The Lost World or the BFG. Like, this is old-school spectacle Spielberg being more successful at this kind of filmmaking than he has been in... 25 years yeah and you know what struck me this last time watching it is you have to give it up for him not being overly precious about his own properties not being overly you know stuffy and reverential about these things and just be like okay i'm gonna put it all in here i'm not worried about ruining the mystique of of jurassic park or the shining or any of these things like it's all fun at the end of the day yeah well, and apparently he was like proactive about wanting to avoid his stuff. Yeah. Because we both read the book. Mm-hmm. It's obviously filled to the brim with his stuff. Yeah. So when it came time to make the movie and I saw he was involved, I started to get worried because I'm like, how is he going to get away with it? Like, how is he literally going to make a film where he's, where he's aping all of his own stuff? I just couldn't see it. 
at the time until I started seeing the trailers and stuff. So he actively avoided his own films with the exception of maybe a T-Rex, a T-Rex you know, yeah. or the DeLorean, which is from a movie he produced. But apparently he really didn't want to do anything from any of his properties. And most of the ones that are in the film are the animators sneaking stuff in, yeah. like without his permission. Sure. You know, yeah. there's gremlins in there. and so, But apparently he was, he didn't direct anyone to do that, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is, is the right move. And yeah, speaks to the fact that he's not, he's not making this film in an attempt to celebrate his own legacy. Yeah. The, so the shining sequence in the movie, in the book, it's, it's, spe- a, it's uh war games, war games. Right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Which is maybe even a little too niche for mass audiences at this point. Yeah. I mean, but shining's not like a populist film. I don't know. Yeah, it's a cult it's a, text, right? It's known. Plus, they do a fun thing where they actually weave it into the narrative, where yeah. it's about the author who hates his own work, yeah. right? That like that's part of the story structure, mm-hmm. and it's Spielberg not referencing and lionizing himself. It's about him referencing and lionizing his hero, right? Yeah. That which is fun it's and fun. cute, and it's a nice tribute. The whole shining thing is is a lot of fun. I mean, there, there's so many, there are a lot of really spectacular sequences, and it, it just moves along pretty well. The opening race, the is, opening race incredible. is so fucking good. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, all the stuff with Halliday, Mark Rylance again, coming yeah. back on. I and, love these three performances. Yeah. It's, it's this trilogy of the Rylance ability. Like, just look at these three films, these three performances. You've got this very subtle, low-key, mm-hmm. closed-mouthed period piece. Mm-hmm. Then you've got the full-on mocap, you know, full CG. Literal giant. Literal yeah. giant. And then this one, you've got this weird um, kind of hybrid situation going on where he's also potentially doing an imitation of Garth or something. <laughs> he's I mean, like, he's there's like nothing the guy can't do. He's kind of like spectrum-y a little bit. Yeah, 100%. Kind of similarly aloof to his Bridge of Spies character, I guess, kind of. Halliday. Definitely a singular presence. Definitely making a lot of uh, choices, choices here yeah. in this role. Spielberg wanted a Willy Wonka. Um, Johnny Depp? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Not Gene Wilder? Yes, Gene Wilder. <laughs> Spielberg wanted Gene Wilder for this role. Oh. And he courted him for many years. And then he passed away and so i think rylance i bet gene wilder would not have done it well apparently yeah i mean he courted him gene wilder was like i'm too old i'm not i'm, I'm not in good health i haven't made a movie in years and yeah. uh, but he, he wanted him really badly because of the that would have been cool it'd be a different movie yeah. but rylance is pretty incredible in this movie and that last scene where they're in his attic yeah i mean really the climactic scene of the movie where he gives him the egg you just see the sort of subtlety and the choices that he's making with this character mm-hmm. it's really amazing to see a guy kind of like transcend the material that way and what i love about rylance is that he's never he's not too good for any of this stuff right no. or he'll go be on a boat in dunkirk yeah. and be in that you know be in a third of the movie in a relatively small role and fucking hit it out of the park mm-hmm. he, well he's not a movie star he's not top of the top of the line i mean as much as you might want him to be yeah he is the biggest name in this movie, though, right? I mean, he's a bigger star than Simon Pegg. Ty Sheridan? Say. Ty certainly bigger than Ty Sheridan and Olivia Cook. There's a lot, of, a lot of mudheads out there, you know? T.J. Miller, <laughs> Ben Mendelsohn. I mean, this movie is so kind of simple and blunt when you think about it. Like, Ben Mendelsohn is playing such a... just. There's no nuance to that villain no. whatsoever. But T.J. Miller is T.J. Miller. Like, yeah. he's he's so good and really funny in this movie. It just sucks that he's such an asshole in real life. That's Allegedly, like, yeah. But, I mean, it's it's modest, and it's it's very straightforward in its intention, right? Yeah. So, And if you're going to have a really blunt, kind of like one-dimensional villain, then you might as well get the most interesting character actor who's currently playing villains, yeah. right? Get Ben Mendelsohn in there to do that, right? Because at least he can find, he can do something fun with it. 
Yeah. No, no, I mean, that, you know, compared to the BFG, which, uh, you know, is kind of cynical and they're like, I'm going to make a kid's movie. It's going to make a fuck ton of money because I'm Spielberg going to make a kid's movie. <laughs> right? That's exactly what Well, that's what it seems like. Um, <laughs> cynical is the word I'd use to describe the BFG. This movie, I don't think it's just a cash grab. Yeah. I think, right. it's, I think it's a eulogy from Melissa Matheson. No, that's, a, that's an didn't... optimistic, nice way to look at it. <laughs> I but, mean, you could look at, at, at Ready Player One as being a little more of a cash grab, right? I mean, but, it was it be- this... but it becomes not one because you're like, okay, let's just have some fun with it. Right, yeah. like we're not not going to try to make this an Oscar Beatty type thing. We're like, is this his earliest uh, in the calendar release? And, Potentially. And, uh, well, I mean, it was supposed to come out six months earlier. It was supposed to come out in the summer of 2017, was I think, it? Okay. right? And I think they bumped it a for the post, but also because they wanted to spend. Imagine being one of the animators in this movie and hearing that Spielberg is going to go make the post, and you're like, oh, thank yeah. God, I've got four more months I could spend it. And maybe that's why it looks so amazing. I mean, it it has one Oscar nomination, which is for visual effects. It probably should win. I mean, Avengers probably will win. Yeah. But this is when the guy really turns it on. And he gets and he and he marshals all the forces yeah. of industrial light and magic beneath him. He can show you things you've never seen before. Yeah, he's been you know he's been doing that since Close Encounters. And there are just transcendent moments in this movie. I'm I'm glad you've kind of come around on it because it's not like this movie needs our. It, it's not like this movie needs our defenses. And there's plenty of indefensible things about it. But it's so en vogue to shit on this movie. You know, like it's yeah. so en vogue to to make it this political flashpoint. And I don't mean to just be so simple-minded as to say, man, just let your mind go and your body will follow. Like, come on, just get, just come along for the ride. This is the only one of these of these four films in this series that I watched twice. I watched it before Bridge of Spies, and then I watched it after The Post. Mm-hmm. And I just find it insanely watchable. I don't know. It's not short. It's a good two and a half hours long. There's a lot of silly things going on. There's a lot of... Um, the idea that Olivia Cook is unattractive. <laughs> we can go back to, you know, she's all that for, yeah, for other, yeah. ex- other examples of this kind of just silliness. But, you know, that's just movies. We like to see beautiful people on screen. Yeah, yeah. I, I like this movie a lot. And this is just a really heartening example of him finally being able to bring the two poles together mm-hmm. for the first time in a long time. Sure. You know? And I didn't think it was possible. And I didn't think it was going to work. And I was very skeptical. And then I saw it in the theater. And I was... Immediately on board. Yeah, and I saw it three times in the theater, and I probably watched another three times since. You get a feeling that it's uh, this movie was maybe even cathartic for him to work on. Right? Yeah, like it just he's just having fun, and that's it. We're not going to try to do anything else. It's it's about him kind of recapturing something that's been elusive for him mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah, I'm glad the movie exists. I think he's the only person who could have brought it to the screen in this manner on this scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the legacy of this film is because yeah. at the moment it doesn't have a particularly good reputation despite the fact that it was made for um, $175 million and went on to make 582 So <laughs> it didn't have a particularly good opening but had a really good uh, multiplier yeah. just stuck with it like you said it came out pretty early in the year and this is his biggest hit in years yeah. you know like his biggest his biggest hit in a long time yeah and you know i i think legacy wise i mean this the movie and the book pretty prescient when it comes to like modern video game stuff right like in game purchasing in game buying yeah like all, all that sort of shit that's going on now which you know if you're on reddit and everything like that's a pretty major flashpoint for people uh, who care about these things but yeah I wonder if we'll look back on this 20 years from now and be like oh this is from this video game era mm-hmm. or whatever I imagine this movie will will age well reputation wise because it's it's an easy watch it's fun to look at it's Spielberg uh, it's a 70 something year old man 
uh, knocking out of the park with a shit ton of CGI, right? Well, we'll discuss more of this, I'm sure, in our wrap-up episode. But you look at his action scenes in this, and this is the first time he's doing like big-scale action stuff in a while yeah. uh, since, I guess, Indiana, the King of the Crystal Skull. And you just look at the way he approaches this stuff geographically, mm-hmm. and you're just like, fucking nobody does it better. Yeah. Like You just look at that opening race sequence, which could have been just a cacophonous mess yeah. if handled by, you know... Michael Bay or sure. Paul Greengrass or something. I don't know. And you just look at that and you're like, man, there are so many moving pieces in this fucking you know, Rubik's Cube, uh, Rube Goldberg yeah. machine, rather. And you never, you're never confused about where you are. No. You're never confused about where you're going. There's never so much happening in any given frame that you don't know what to look at. I mean, just, you know, geography, geometry, trajectory, he just touched by God, you know, just, I mean, just born, you know, God reached down and touched this artist on the head and said, you will understand how to deal with the logic of an action scene better than anyone who's ever come before, you know, certainly better than any of your peers. Well, Matt, I think that might be a good place to, uh, to end this. Yeah, I guess that's it. I guess that's it until West Side Story, right? (laughs) West Side Story, yeah. Coming out in, what, 2020? I hope it's in 2019. Something we didn't mention in this episode is that this is the first time that he's had four films in a row that came out in four back-to-back years, which is why we sort of discussed talking about this episode as being kind of like you know the master of consistency or the steady hand or whatever. Yeah. He has fallen into a place in his career where he has all the resources available to him, yeah. and he seems like he's hungry. Yeah. He seems like there's still stuff he wants to explore. And with the way people are aging and Hollywood's comfort... like. He's 72 years old right now, right? Yeah. Clint Eastwood just uh, directed a film at the age of 88. Yeah. We, we might get 10 more Spielberg movies. At least. I mean, if he stays on this movie-a-year trajectory, yeah. yeah, he'll be alive for at he's least... He's an old guy. He doesn't drink. Well, plus... He's yeah. got kids that keep him young, you 100%. know? 100%. He's, yeah, he's, he's lived a very healthy life. He's, you know, he's deeply spiritual. Yeah. Uh, he has, a, obviously, a great family. Plus, he has $3 billion in the bank. Yeah. So, he can, he can afford like, medical... Hey, well, yeah. I was saying if no one wants to fund him, he can just say, fuck it, I'm making this movie. Oh, absolutely, which is something that Lucas has obviously been doing for a long time. And I'm just saying, like, he had, if there's anybody who can afford, you know, he and Jeff Bezos can afford to pay for all the medical experimentation. Sure. That, I mean, you can't outrun cancer at a certain point, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm assuming he'll live long enough he could start financing his own um, biomechanical He's kidney or something. He's probably sleeping in a cryo chamber exactly. already. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, that'll do it for this episode of the Spielberg oeuvre. Thankfully, we're going to do one more. Yes. We're going to rank the movies, each of us, and then we're going to have a couple of, uh, or a handful of top five lists to go along with that, right? Yep, I'm excited. It's, I'm really looking forward to that episode because, God, I mean, it's going to be a lot of the same types of films, I'm assuming, but we've given ourselves some rules that'll hopefully mean we'll introduce few more unexpected you know yeah a few outlier movies a few more of his black sheep hopefully all right well until next time this has been we like movies say oeuvre man oeuvre